let's let our kids go, actually, to uh, junior church. All kids age four up through age ten can walk, 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 walk to junior church. And join with me in praying for the morning offering, which, as uh, Stan mentioned, is the regular morning offering. The missions offering is next week. Let's pray. God, we're here to focus on you. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, if you want to open your Bibles. As we continue hitting some of the high points through the book of Ephesians, today's passage is about the difference between being in and being on the outside looking in. And I'm going to get a drink of water. Before we continue, I can't think of a better context to get our minds around what it feels like to be in and what it feels like to be out than the teenage years. And everyone's experience of being a teen is different, but I'll share with you part of mine and maybe you'll relate to it in one way or another. I started high school as an outsider. All the kids that I wanted to hang out with were too cool for me. And I was ignored, I was excluded, I was sometimes teased. I was always trying to fit in, but never quite succeeding. And then in 10th grade, my fortunes changed. My assigned seat in English class was next to one of the most popular girls in the class, and somehow we grew to become good friends. And if I was cool enough for her, I was cool enough for everyone in her group. And so suddenly I was in. I got invited to sit at their lunch table. I got invited along to whatever they were doing. I was part of the, the inside jokes. I was part of the gang. And for a 15-year-old, it didn't get much better than that. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul says that something like that has happened to each of us if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 11 to 12 of our passage, Paul says that before we knew Christ, we were out. We were on the outside. In verses 13 to 17, Paul tells us what Christ did to change that situation, much like my friend did for me in 10th grade. And finally, in verses 18 to 22, Paul describes for us how we're now in. We're insiders. So let's work our way through these three movements in our passage. First, who we were. Second, what Christ did. And third, who we are now, if our trust is in Christ. Paul begins the first movement with the first command in the book of the Ephesians. It's the command to remember. Remember what you once were. There's nothing worse than a child who's born into humble circumstances, who grows up to have good fortune and then forgets what he or she used to be. Like a peasant girl who becomes a princess and, and in that royal position has no mercy on those who are still poor. Or the gangbanger who escapes the hood for the good life in the burbs and, and he's suddenly too good for his friends and family back home who he's left behind. When we forget what we once were, we grow proud, we, we become ungrateful, we lose our compassion. So remember, Paul says, remember who you were. Remember what life used to be like. In verses 11 to 12, Paul then reminds us, he begins 
with the subject of name calling because nothing cuts deeper than to be called names. Verse 11, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. A Gentile, of course, is anyone who's not a Jew. And in Paul's day, Jews despised non-Jews. And they called them all kinds of derogatory names. Names like dog and Gentile sinner and uncircumcised. Now to feel the bite of these names, you've got to think of derogatory names that people use today. Think of the worst racial slur that you can think of. Or or the crude names that people use to cut down gays. That's the feeling that a word like uncircumcised conveys in Paul's day, coming from a Jew's mouth toward a Gentile. It cut deep. Gentiles knew that they were on the outside. And like African Americans in the Jim Crow South, the name calling was all the worse because it represented real discrimination. In the case of African Americans, it was social and economic and political and structural. Restaurants you couldn't go into, schools you couldn't attend, jobs that you wouldn't be hired for. For Gentiles, the discrimination was social and cultural and above all spiritual. Listen to how Paul puts it. Gentiles were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Separated, excluded, foreigners to everything wonderful that God was doing in the world. First, Gentiles were separated from Christ. Ever since the days of the prophets, the Jews were looking forward to the day that their Christ, their Messiah, would come. He would be a great king. He would usher in the renewal of the whole world and he would rule over the earth forever, putting God's enemies under his feet. Now, if you were a Jew, this was good news. But if you were a Gentile, this was your certain doom. Because you were the enemy that Christ was coming to destroy. You were separated from Christ. Second, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. God had a people, a special people, whom he called his own. He watched over them and he cared for them. He taught them right from wrong. He revealed himself to them. And if you were a Gentile, you were a persona non grata. None of this was for you. You were excluded from citizenship. Third, you were a foreigner to the covenants of the promise. God had made promises and commitments to his people. He would bless them. He would make them a blessing. He would never leave them nor forsake them. He would always be their God and they would be his people. But if you were a Gentile, none of these promises were for you. You were on the outside looking in. Like dirty-faced street children with empty bellies pushing their face against the glass of an exclusive restaurant as well-heeled patrons enjoy a sumptuous feast inside. As Paul summarizes in verse 14, without hope, without God in the world. Remember. Paul says, remember what you were, outsiders, hopeless, without God. But now, verse 13, but now, aren't those beautiful words? 
Wonderful adversative, one preacher called them. You were on the outside without hope, without God, but now the Christ, the Messiah has come and He has done something surprising and wonderful. This leads us into verses 13 to 17 in the second movement of this passage. And to get the full impact of what Christ has done for us, I want to take a minute to put this in the context of the way that Paul saw the world. So this is background for a minute here. Paul saw history as being made up of two ages. The old age and the new kingdom age. The old age was characterized by the flesh. The new age is characterized by the spirit. You'll notice that Paul uses these words, flesh and spirit, in our passage. It doesn't always come out in in all the English translations. But verse 18, if you look at the original, literally reads, Therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who were being called uncircumcised by those called circumcision in the flesh by human hands. And then down in verses 18 to 22, Paul talks about access by one spirit and the temple in whom God lives by his spirit. Flesh and spirit. They describe, well, first of all, those Two words for Paul, if you read through his letters, are loaded key words that come up again and again. And they describe two realities which couldn't be more different from one another. Flesh is weak and frail and, and impotent. Spirit is powerful and it's bursting. He's bursting with possibilities. Flesh is sinful and, and bent on selfishness. Spirit is good and loving and righteous. In the old age, fleshly distinctions like your ethnic group or your outward or an outward mark like circumcision could reign supreme and it could it could bring you in and ensure that you were in or it could shut you out from God. And Gentiles were stuck in the, in the impotence and the powerlessness of that situation, that flesh situation. But now Paul says, Christ has come. And Christ, through his death and resurrection, has broken out of that old age of the flesh and has brought us into a new age characterized by the Spirit. And this has changed everything. And one of the key changes now as we get back to our passage, given that background, one of the key changes has to do with the Old Testament law. Verses 14 and 15. Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. During the old age of the flesh, God gave his law to the Jews, a system of commands and rules to to help them obey God. This law separated the Jews from the rest of humanity. It taught them to live differently. It taught them to love and worship the true God. It also gave them a unique identity and culture. Because of the law, Jews worked six days and they rested on Saturday. Because of the law, Jews circumcised their children. I shouldn't use the past tense. They still do do these things. Because of the law, Jews do not eat pork or shellfish, and at that time at least they they would not sit down at a table where such things might be served. 
And so the Jews could not associate with Gentiles who didn't eat according to the law. The law was a good and wonderful thing, but not only did it bless those who were in, it also excluded and cursed those who were out. And so like any wall, it couldn't help but create hostility between the insiders and the outsiders. And so circumcised law keepers came to look down on uncircumcised lawless Gentiles. The dividing and, and excluding nature of the law is graphically portrayed by the soreg, which is the stone wall which surrounded Herod's temple in Paul's day to keep Gentiles away from God's holy presence. Every so often along this wall, a warning was posted in various languages, warning all Gentiles, let no one of any other nation come within this fence and barrier around the holy place. Whoever will be taken doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. To the point. <laughs> so the soreg, the, the dividing wall, symbolizes what the law did to Gentiles. Cutting them off from God's people and from God. Back in 1990, a friend of mine went to Germany. And he brought back for me a piece of another wall. A wall of hostility which had stood for years between East and West. Keeping a people divided. But in 1989, that wall came down and two people became one. And that's like what Paul says Christ has done. Christ came and Christ kicked down the wall. How did he do it? Verses 14 and 15. By setting aside the law when he died on the cross. This word set aside can also be translated nullify or render ineffective. Just like if I'm in Yorktown and I'm doing what a lot of people do, I'm driving 55 down Underhill Road into Yorktown, even though the speed limit is now 30. And I'm driving down the road and suddenly I see a police car and I look at my speedometer and I go, uh-oh. But then I realize that it has austening markings on it. And phew, I don't have to worry because I'm not in Austin. I'm in Yorktown. That officer's authority to uphold the local traffic laws was nullified and rendered ineffective when he left Austin. And so when Christ died on the cross, he left the old age of the flesh, which was under the authority of the Old Testament law, and he broke through in his resurrection to a new age. The age of the spirit where the law is null and void in its authority to condemn us. And so if we're in Christ and, and we've entered the new age with Christ, then the Old Testament law has no authority over us anymore. Christ is our authority now. And of course, when we obey Christ, we fulfill what the law demanded all along. But why would God do that? Why would God do away with the law? The law was good, right? Uh, the, the Old Testament law is wonderful. The Ten Commandments and the whole rest of it. It teaches us how to worship the one true God, to, to tell the truth, to be faithful to our spouses, to care for the poor, to defend the cause of the oppressed, 
Why would Christ nullify it and, and take away its authority? Because it formed a barrier. It made for insiders and for outsiders. It was a wall keeping Gentiles out and away from God. And so Christ kicked it down. Because he was on a mission of love to bring Gentiles close. Verse 13. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Boy, this verse has meant a lot to me over the years. When I read it, I get this spatial picture of how far away from God I was. God was there in his temple in the inner sanctum, the most holy place. And his holy presence was guarded by a heavy curtain with fierce cherubim embroidered on it, warrior angels, off limits to all except for the high priest and only once a year. Outside of that curtain was the rest of the temple, which was off limits to everyone but sanctified priests. Outside of that was the temple's inner court, off limits to all except Jewish men. Outside of that was the temple's court of the women, which was off limits to all except Jewish men and women. And outside of that, outside of the soreg, was the temple's outer court, which was where I was, far, far many times separated from God. But now, Paul says, but now Christ has kicked down the wall and brought me near. Verse 16, in one body, Christ reconciled us to God through the cross. In his death on the cross, Christ put to death the hostility between us and God. He buried the hatchet, so to speak. Everything we'd done to offend God and to break his law, everything we'd done to alienate ourselves from God, Christ took it away. And then he took our hand and he walked us past the soreg into the court of the women, then into the Jewish court and up past the altar, up the steps, into the temple itself, and then through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. where father and son wept tears of joy and embraced us and celebrated being reconciled to us. If you haven't experienced that personal relationship with God, that's available through Christ to all of us. And maybe you have a friend or you want to come talk to me and we can explain to you how to experience that. Well, believe it or not, there's still more good news in this passage. Not only did Christ nullify the law and break down the wall to bring us to God, but he also did those things to create a brand new human society. Verse 14, Christ himself is our peace who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one. Verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is a brand new act of creation. Christ came to end the hostility and the exclusion between Jews and Gentiles, those old, that old flesh reality, and to create in the world a brand new unified humanity 
which is a truly miraculous spirit thing. No wonder the early Christians actually called themselves a new race or, or a third race. Neither Jew nor Gentile. They called themselves a third race. When I lived in Washington, D.C., I helped to start a multi-ethnic church there. And our African-American pastor loved this passage in Ephesians. Because it proved that racial reconciliation is part of the gospel. And I started to realize as I grappled with this passage that in Paul's day, his gospel was more radical on a social level than anything Martin Luther King Jr. ever preached or did for America. Because in Jesus Christ, God is breaking down all of the barriers between people. Between Jew and Gentile first, yes. But also between male and female, between slave and free, between black and white between conservative and liberal, between white-collar PhD and minimum-wage immigrant. For those who follow Christ, there is only one humanity. And we're to model that in the church. Ephesians 4, we'll get to that a little bit later. Until that day when Christ returns and everyone will be united under him in peace and in harmony and the whole creation with it. That's the message of Ephesians. Well, that leads to the third movement of this passage, the new us, now that we're in Christ. Verse 18, for through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Access by the Spirit. Access. What a wonderful word. My credit card sent me an email a while back with an exclusive chance to buy a VIP concert package for the upcoming U2 concert at Giant Stadium. For $1,000 and on up, I could have a pair of tickets for, and a friend and I could have access to backstage, to a VIP party, to special parking, and to front row seats. Maybe I'd even get to meet the band. I'm using that money to buy diapers instead. <laughs> but people evidently will pay big money for access. <sighs> and now that the barrier wall has been kicked down by Christ, we all, Jew or Gentile, have backstage pass access to God. How? By the Spirit, Paul says. In this new age that Christ has begun, the Spirit is the key to our relationship with God. To our unity as a people. To our participation in the new humanity that God is now creating. And Paul gives us three pictures to describe what this access is like. The first is the image of citizenship. When Anne and I moved to Canada a number of years ago, we came to appreciate some of the benefits of the citizenship that we did not have there. Because we weren't citizens, we couldn't get a credit card, first of all. We couldn't get a mortgage either, so owning our home was out of the question. Of course, we couldn't vote, though, of course, we did have to pay our taxes. Every year, we had to reapply to keep living in Canada. And then once we got permission for another year and we paid our fee, we had to reapply for Canada's version of a Social Security number. 
And then we had to reapply for our health insurance. Once I was working, I wasn't allowed to study in Canada anymore, and I wasn't allowed to work any other job than the one I'd been approved for. Why all these hassles and restrictions? Because we weren't citizens. We didn't really fully belong. And that's what we Gentiles used to be in relation to God's kingdom. But Christ has changed that. Now we've been granted our citizenship among God's people. We belong. We enjoy all of the, the benefits and the privileges and the responsibilities of being full members of Christ's new humanity. Citizenship. The second picture Paul gives us is that of membership of God's household or in God's household. Households in Paul's day were not like nuclear families today. Rather, households back in Ephesus in that day were little communities of several dozen people in many cases. They were buzzing with social life and economic industry. Households consisted of the father of the house and his wife, children, often elderly relatives, slaves, apprentices or employees, and even business partners and clients, all living and working under the same roof in a large villa-type house. Over the whole family was the pater familias, the father of the family. And this man ruled over that household with great authority, and he represented them to the outside world. If he was honored in society, then they were honored as a household. If, if he prospered, then the household prospered. If he was strong and influential in his community, then the household members would enjoy great protection and security and status. And here Paul tells us the wonderful news that God himself has adopted us to be full members of his household. Talk about honor. Talk about security. Talk about wealth. Talk about identity. God's household is the one to be in. God the Father himself is our pater familias, our dad. The third, for a third picture that Paul gives us is that of God's temple. The place where God's own presence dwells. Oh, how far we've come. It used to be that we were excluded from God's temple. Jews excluded to some extent. Gentiles excluded way more. But now... We're brought so close that we are God's temple. Could we be any closer? God dwells in us by His Spirit. Talk about access. God living within us. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we've even begun to grasp the full implications of this. If we've put our trust in Christ, then we live in the new age characterized by the Spirit. And God is building us together to be the temple in which God dwells. Listen to these stirring words from J.I. Packer's book on the Holy Spirit. He says, The New Testament writers expect that every Christian community will show forth the power of the Holy Spirit. For to enjoy a rich outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a privilege entailed upon the New Testament church as such. For churches to lack the Spirit's powerful working in their corporate life 
is by biblical standards unnatural, just as heresy is. And this unnatural state of affairs can only be accounted for in terms of human failure. The New Testament has a phrase for the failure in question. We may, it says, quench the spirit by resisting or undervaluing his work and by declining to yield to his influence. Now, it is hard to deny that we inherit today a situation in which the Spirit of God has been quenched. Unnatural as it may be, the Spirit's power is absent from the majority of our churches. Then the old conservative Anglican theologian observes, churches tend to run in grooves of conventionality, and such grooves quickly turn into graves. Only styles and structures that serve the Spirit should stand. Everything bogging us down in lifeless routines or restraining the fruitful use of spiritual gifts should be changed no matter how sacrosanct we previously took it to be. The Holy Spirit is not a sentimentalist, as too many of us are. He is a change agent. And he comes to change human structures as well as human hearts. Change for its own sake is mere fidgeting but change that gets rid of obstacles to God's fullest blessing is both a necessity and a mercy. Oh, we've come so far from out to in, from foreigner to citizen, from barrier and hostility to to unity and belonging, from far off very near from flesh to spirit oh that we come to fully enjoy and fully experience all of these blessings so here's my challenge CBC let's learn to tune into God and to trust that in the weeks and the months ahead he'll show us where we're quenching his spirit And what kinds of styles or routines or structures or ministries we need in order to give God's spirit full reign among us. Because I don't know about you, but I long to be part of a community that's vibrantly alive in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, the Apostle Paul lays it on so thick. There's so much he's bursting, so much news he's bursting to share with us. And as we've breathed through so much of it today, I pray that it would continue to be alive in our hearts and that your word would speak to us and lift us out of um, just what we're used to and the way that that we can grow complacent and our hearts can long for those far-off, wonderful realities we read about, and yet it somehow seems so out of touch. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see that it's so close, that you're so close. And I pray that you'd clearly lead us to put aside our own agendas and, and to understand how we may be quenching your spirit and what new wineskins you want to give us to... to um, to catch and savor the the new wine of your kingdom 
as your spirit is always doing a new creation work among us. God be our leader. Jesus be our leader. Amen.